One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, April 26th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, State House Speaker Philip Gunn addresses a new U.S. Department of Justice report detailing conditions at Parchment Prison and a look at alternatives to policing in the Deep South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Civil rights groups yesterday filed a lawsuit alleging Mississippi Supreme Court districts discriminate against black voters. About 38 percent of Mississippians are African-American, but none of the state Supreme Court districts are currently majority black. Jarvis Dorch is executive director of the ACLU of Mississippi, which is one of the organizations that brought the suit on behalf of several plaintiffs. Dorch speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. Mississippi uses three districts to elect nine members to the state Supreme Court. Um, we only have one black member of that nine-member nine court, and we've only had one black member at a time. So in 100 years, we've only had four black members elected to the state Supreme Court, and all of those four black members have first been appointed by a governor. So we're showing um, in our complaint that it is very difficult for black voters in Mississippi to have a choice in who, who represents them on the state Supreme Court. And that can be changed very easily by uh, drawing new district lines. And these districts have not been addressed or changed since 1987. What could having more black members mean for Mississippi as a whole, especially for black Mississippians? I mean, for black Mississippians, it's about having trust in our institutions. And you need to be able to look at your government, your courts, and see um, a body that looks and reflects the state of Mississippi. Uh, when you only have one justice out of nine, there are, there are a lot of black Mississippians who look at that and don't feel like that's a body that's going to actually represent them. Um, and that's for black Mississippians. But I think all Mississippians want to have trust and faith, and they want their neighbors to have trust and faith in their bodies of government. And, you know, if you're a white Mississippian and you see a state Supreme Court that is eight members are white, one member is black, but you see black folks in every aspect of your daily life, you know Mississippi is a 40% black state, you should also have questions about how that is and how we got to the point where that's the case. When the case goes to before the court, what do you expect to have to face? What questions have to be answered to be able to address and potentially have more 
representation on these districts? Yeah, we know one of the first things you have to show is that you can actually create a majority black district, and we have seen evidence um, that you can do that. Um, these districts are four counties, so you're not talking about splitting up precincts. You're not talking about splitting up communities. You can take other counties and add to other counties from other districts add them to the central district and create a majority black district. So we can show that. That's going to be one of the first things we have to prove in court. Um, other things are going to be like, you know, showing that we have a pattern of voting by race in Mississippi. And there's plenty of evidence that that's the case. So there are a lot of things that we have to show to get through this, but we think we have a very compelling case. And our, our complaint shows and answers much of what's needed to be answered. Mississippi has also only had in addition to only having four black Supreme Court justices over the past uh, 100 years, uh, we've also only had four female justices over the past 100 years. You know, I wanted to get your thoughts on what this could mean for potentially even women in the state or uh, black women in the state. Yeah, so 2020, we actually had a black woman run for state Supreme Court. Um, she's a current uh, member of the Court of Appeals, very highly qualified, and she lost by a few points. Um, that same year, Leslie King, who was appointed, was unopposed. So we know that this district is a tough district for for b black Mississippians to get elected in, period, but in particular women, because we've seen, you know, across race that women have trouble getting elected in this state. Um, so we're hoping that this is an opportunity for not just, you know, black Mississippians, that this is a, a opportunity for us to add um, some gender balance to our state Supreme Court as well. And then lastly, I wanted to ask, you know, Mississippi is one of only a few states that has an election-based Supreme Court system. You know, do you, do you think that would need to be addressed in the future to make a more equitable court system in Mississippi? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some arguments, you know, <laughs> um, about whether or not we should be electing judges. Um, that's not in this case, but, you know, there are issues that come up when you have justices that have to run and make what amounts to political arguments for why they should be elected instead of being having justices that are there to provide justice, and that should be their main focus, not appeasing the one political party or the other. So that's a separate issue right now, but it's definitely something that you know folks are concerned about, and you know me personally, that I'm concerned about. Jarvis George is executive director of the ACLU of Mississippi. Coming up, what State House Speaker Philip Gunn has to say about a new Department of Justice report detailing conditions at Parchment Penitentiary. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. I, I, I came today to talk about legislative accomplishments. That's Mississippi House Speaker Philip Gunn at yesterday's Stennis Capitol Press Forum responding to a question about the redistricting lawsuit we heard about a few minutes ago. I want to give my members uh, credit for that. Um, I want to make sure that they get the, the recognition that they're due. So I'm reluctant to talk about things that are not associated with that. I am not familiar with it. This is the first I've heard of it. I've not read the lawsuit. I know nothing about it. So I'm sorry I can't comment on that. 
Gunn did indeed spend most of his time yesterday highlighting key bills passed during this year's legislative session, including first and foremost. The largest tax cut in the history of our state. We've cut about a third. Full implementation, it will be about a one-third cut on our income tax. That income tax cut falls short of the total elimination both Gunn and Governor Reeves had advocated ahead in the session. But it does eliminate the 4% tax bracket and shave the 5% bracket down to 4% over a period of years. Gunn also touted new laws that raise teacher pay, legalize medical marijuana and limit, eminent domain, among others. And he addressed the dispute that doomed efforts to recreate a ballot initiative process in the state. The, the biggest disagreement between House and Senate occurred over what is the threshold required, how many signatures are required to um, put an initiative or a referendum before the people. Currently, it's 12 percent of those who voted in the last governor's race. The Senate wanted to raise it to 12 percent of those registered to vote, which is a much higher, almost doubles the amount required, amount of signatures required to put something on the ballot. And so that's, that's kind of where the, as I recall, that was the last conversation we had was over that number. On a separate note, Gunn says he is in preliminary talks with relevant committee chairs about a recent report from the Justice Department detailing failures at Parchman State Penitentiary. The report claims the state is violating inmates' constitutional rights. A similar investigation in Alabama resulted in a lawsuit in 2020. They are very much aware that, that Alabama lost that lawsuit, and they're, very, and they're searching for ways to try to make sure that we don't end up in the same situation. As I recall, the Alabama lawsuit resulted in about a $2 billion expense that they were ordered to, to pay. Obviously, we can't afford such a thing. We only have a $6 billion budget. Again, that's Mississippi House Speaker Philip Gunn. Cities across the Gulf South saw a record number of homicides in 2021. Law enforcement reported hundreds of killings in cities like Birmingham, Jackson, and New Orleans, most caused by gun violence. From the Gulf States newsroom, Brittany Brown takes us to the people who are looking beyond law enforcement for solutions. Behind a string of yellow police tape, a family is mourning a man who was just shot and killed in his car. It's a muggy spring afternoon, and they're standing outside of a crumbling apartment complex in Algiers, a neighborhood on New Orleans' West Bank. Tamara Jackson hears about the incidents via police dispatch and is one of the first people on the scene. She gets out of her black SUV and walks straight up to the police tape. She knows the routine. Whenever there's a homicide scene, the fire department is dispatched to do the washout. So they're not leaving blood. Uh, and people know who she is. She was just here the day before responding to another homicide. It's the same apartment, so yeah. She guides the victim's families as they try to cope with the loss. And she helps them deal with questions, both big and small. So with my car keys, I don't, I'm not sure if he had it on his head in his pocket. Jackson is a victim services advocate with the city's Office of Gun Violence Prevention. The office is new, created in 2021. 
But Jackson has been steeped in this work for nearly two decades, and she's seen it all. This specific weekend, Jackson responded to at least six homicides across the city. I'm not sure what is happening, but New Orleans tends to spiral out of control where we're seeing an insurgence of shootings and homicides happening. New Orleans is often listed as one of the deadliest cities in the U.S. In her role, Jackson also focuses on the root causes of recurring violence. Poverty is definitely an issue. Folks are living I'm in Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner and associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical New Orleans Center is a on Southern Remedy Healthy where one out of every four residents lives in poverty. Experts who study community violence say those systemic issues make an area ripe for crime. Last year, a record-breaking 218 homicides occurred in the city, most as a result of gun violence. Violent crime comes in waves. That's Samantha Francois, executive director of the Violence Prevention Institute at Tulane University. We are in a, a peak right now across the country that has been spurred by the pandemic and, and all of the physical and social isolation and the job loss and instability. The Institute is funded by the CDC and it's the first of its kind in the Gulf South, one of only five in the country. It serves as a violence prevention hub for youth across the region, studying the root causes and solutions. Francois hopes to expand to more cities and rural parts in the Gulf South. And this is again my vision, that youth have unfettered access in their schools, in their neighborhoods, in all of the institutions that hold responsibility and accountability to them. Francois also works with community leaders like Tamara Jackson. And for Jackson, this work is personal. After her father was killed in 2000, she made it her mission to help victims' families navigate the criminal legal system and cope with loss. Our service are in line with offering support and addressing the need of the victims and their families, where the police department is more focused on the investigation. Like Jackson, many residents in New Orleans suffer from intergenerational trauma caused by gun violence. At the crime scene in Algiers, three women are huddled together. They're coping with what just happened and how common it is. We know a lot of people that got killed by the gun violence. I don't even know how to count. Right. That's how many. And look, let's watch them. I'm 34 years old. My mom got killed by gun violence when I was three. If we go back way from when we was young to now, the number is bigger than you can even imagine. I said yesterday, it used to be one person you know that maybe died. Now it's two, three, four, five. More than 500 people were killed between New Orleans, Birmingham, and Jackson, Mississippi last year. For each one of those people, there's a whole community left behind trying to heal. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Brittany Brown. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration among public media stations in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama. As you may have heard, we are experiencing some minor technical difficulties, and we are working on those. You're listening to Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. William Faulkner enthusiasts can now spend a night at the spot where the acclaimed writer was born in New Albany. Jill Smith is director of the Union County Heritage Museum. We've been 
thinking about trying to preserve that space, that property, for many years. And the Historical Society, Union County Historical Society here in New Albany, um, began to think, well, we need to purchase this. And so we did. I believe we purchased it in 2019 and uh, started making plans on you know, how to make it its highest and best use. And um, so the the community really supported this effort, and we created the inn. So um, it's now a four-bedroom, two-bath inn that um, is um, uh, people can come and stay. It has a, a writer's theme, of course, because it's the Faulkner birth site. This inn is the building, the original home, that he was born in? I only wish, but it's not. Um, that uh, The original home was torn down in uh, 1953 to make way for the, uh, it's called like the Presbyterian Church Manse. It was the home where the pastor lived. And so from 1953 forward, this, this building has been on the, the site. But the historic marker uh, has, was put there probably well, a long time before I came here, probably in the 60s, that um, shows it's the William Faulkner birth site. What made you decide on doing an inn, creating an inn with this property? Well, when you come to New Albany, there, um, of course, it's it's adjacent to museum property, and um, William Faulkner's birth site is an important element to any to add to any community, but we had talked about using it as a place to do workshops or um, a lot of different things, but the house lends itself better to become to be in an inn, and you can come and stay in New Albany and ride the Tanglefoot Trail that Faulkner's great-grandfather, you know, it's the old GM&O Trail. Uh, you can come and do that. You can come to the museum. You can come to the art house and take classes, so... We felt like that um, we could help tell that story and uh, allow people to see our community and enjoy it. So it's almost kind of like a little campus addition. Yeah, that's what we call it. We call it our campus. <laughs> he was born in 1897. Do you know how long he stayed in that home? He was probably maybe three years old when they left. He, well, he didn't stay here very long, but I think it's interesting that the center, the of his fictional county, Yachna Patafa, was Jefferson, and he was born on Jefferson Street. So he probably carried a little bit of that, our town with him, into into his made-up community. How many people would you think have come through and stayed at the inn, come and visit the inn just to see it? Oh, well, so we opened it up Christmas uh, for the public, and we probably had uh, we probably had a hundred people come through to to see what we've done there, and um, and we open you know people can book it for meetings if they want to have meetings out there, and we probably will do some poetry readings and workshops. Um, it's a, it's convenient for us to be able to uh, have a workshop presenter stay there uh, while they present their workshops or have something out at the we have an art house that. Uh, we give a lot of lessons and classes, and so the presenters sometimes stay at the end, which is, you know, on the same block. 
when folks come through and talk about him, what is it that makes him such a draw and such a prolific writer that they want to experience this place? Well, you know, I think there's different answers to that question. Um, his techniques are, uh, I think what the what the true scholars look at are his techniques, and then they look at what he wrote about. And the rural culture uh, all across Tampa Union and Lafayette counties are what he wrote about, where he found his his people, I guess, his inspiration, his characters. Uh, and I ran across something the other day. I had uh, the book Light in August has uh, a, a character in it, Joe Christmas. And uh, I ran into the Christmas family. I found them, you know, just by accident. And uh, I thought, well, I, I had never heard that name, that last name in our area, but there it is. So, so there's an actual we, family with that last name. Yes, there is, in Tippa County. So, you know, you're all time finding these little tidbits or, of information about people that you can connect to the Faulkner Yachtna Patafa, his, his postage stamp of native soil. Jill Smith, director of the Union County Heritage Museum, thank you so much for your time in speaking with us. Thank you very much.